um, called Part 4. Called Part 4. I've enjoyed this series. I hope you have as well. In my time in the Word and studying for this, the Lord has been... um, well, there's no other way to put it. He's kind of ripped me to shreds a little bit in a good way. Um, you know, when you're, when you're having those times with the Lord and he's just shining a light on places in your life and your walk with him, then he's like, all right, it's time to, it's time to step it up. It's time to, time to really get engaged with the things concerning the kingdom. And I've loved this. I've loved the time that I've got to spend with him in, in 1 Corinthians and reading about the church there. So I want, to, I want you to open your Bibles this morning to two places, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and John chapter 4. We've been in 1 Corinthians 3 for this whole series. Our anchor passage has been out of 1 Corinthians. We're going to start there this morning and we're going to end up in John chapter 4. I want to prep you. Get you ready, just so you know, we're going to, in John chapter 4 especially, we're, we're tackling 38 verses of John chapter 4. Um, so we're going to do a lot of time in the Word this morning, but I believe the Lord has something uh, special that He wants to deposit in our hearts out of this passage. So the series called, we started out talking about calling and what it means to be called. We've, we talked about the fact that everyone is called. Whether you know the Lord or not, every person born on the face of this earth has a calling on their lives, that God has called them, that he has set them apart, whether, whether they walk with him as a believer or not. That's an important distinction for us, because I think sometimes there's this creeping in that happens in the church where people think, well, we're the called ones and they're not. But, Je- but Jesus says that, that God's heart is that none would perish. None would perish. He has a plan for everyone. And whether or not they embrace and engage in that plan, that makes all the difference. We talked about the fact that you can't know God, uh, you know your calling rather, unless you know God. You know God. And so we've been aligning this, this whole series with our mission statement as a church. In fact, I want to put that up. We can read that together. So our purpose, why we exist, is to be a faith community who lives the gospel in such a way that people come to know God, grow as disciples, serve like Jesus, and go into all the world to reach others for Christ. That's what we're about. That's what new community is all about. So we start out with knowing God, and we have this icon. It's an arrow that goes up and down. You can see it on the left. In fact, if we can go to the next slide right there. So you need to know God. You cannot know your calling if you do not know God. And so we have to start there. Every one of us, we can't skip that step. We talked about growing as a disciple. You have to grow as a disciple. And so we have this error that goes left to right. The idea being that you're expanding, that you're, you're, there, there's more to who you are as a believer. You have to be rooted and established. You have to grow. Not yet. Go back. You have to be rooted and established, and you have to grow in order to bear fruit. An apple tree cannot bear fruit until it's established, its roots go down deep. We talked about prescribed soil, and that the prescribed soil for the believer is the church, is the church, and not just any church. We, We don't get to choose where we go to church. We don't get to choose. We have to listen to the voice of the Lord and say, God, where is it that you want me to be? Because if I get to choose, I can choose to leave as well. God says, no, you need to stay in the soil that I prescribed for you, even when it's tough, even when it's difficult. And unless God says, go, you stay right where you are. We need to learn to serve like Jesus served. So we know, we grow, and then we serve. You have a job to do. And last week we talked about the building, that you are a building and that you are part of the building God has called you to use the gifts that, that you have to help build, that you're a subcontractor. But then as First Peter says, that you are living stones being fit together into this house that God is building. And it's an awesome house. And you, your part, your gifting, brings something unique to the process. And that's to say that if you're not a part of it, if you're removed, then something is missing Something is missing, and so you are important. Well, today we're going to talk about going. There's a world to reach. And I, I tell you what, with the events of this weekend, Friday, and, and just the global perspective we have, 
And the way that we can pull up our phones or our iPads or our computers and look at the, the media, turn on our TVs, and we can in a moment know what's happening around the world. And all it just keeps screaming to me is, people need Jesus. People need Jesus. They need hope. They need salvation. They need to know what his plan is for their lives. That people would, would be so deceived that they would hurt others the way that we saw on Friday night and even hurt themselves. That God says, that's not, that's not my heart. People need Jesus. So we're going to talk about going. We've talked about running a race. We talked about the Ironman triathlon. We talked about apples and apple seeds and orchards. We've talked about building and growing. And um, there's been all kinds of analogies. And scripture is, is just full of these analogies. Well, today we're going to talk about the field. We're going to talk about the field as we see in 1 Corinthians 3. But before I, I get to that, you ever realize in life that timing is important? Right? Timing Timing is important. If you're baking a cake, timing is important, right? Megan, Megan had a cake in the oven the other day, and then she had to run an errand. She's like, listen for the buzzer. <laughs> and when it goes off, take the knife and slide it into the cake. And if it comes out dry, it's good to go. If it's still, if it's still wet and there's, there's still batter on the knife, set the timer for another 10 minutes and then check it again. Important, Right? Because you don't want to burn the cake. I mean, there's a few people who are like, I like burned cake. You're weird. All right? I like good cake. It's timing is important. Um, doing your taxes. Timing is important. Right? If you don't do your taxes on time, man, it's going to cost you. There's going to be a knock at the door. Timing is important. Asking someone a question. Timing is important. Asking someone a question during a movie at the movie theater. Timing is important. Don't have a conversation. It's not the right time. We're here to watch a movie, right? Timing is important. Having an important conversation. Timing is important. Um, I'm, I'm a night person, and Megan's a morning person. And we had to figure out timing. Because I'm like at night, I'm like, hey, let's have a conversation about something life-changing and important. And Megan's like, ah, no, right? But in the morning, it's the same thing. And so we've had to figure out in our relationship, what's the right time to have an important conversation, right? Timing as, is important. You can go on YouTube, you can see videos of guys proposing to their girlfriends. Um, and some get the timing right. And sometimes, they, not even in the asking, but the fact that they're already asking, right? You ever seen that? Like, you're already asking me this question? <laughs> I've known you for three days. Not a good, timing, timing is important. Timing is important. Timing's important to God. It's, in, in fact, it's critically important to God. In fact, Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8 says this. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. I love Paul. If, listen, there's sarcasm in the Bible. Paul is, is great. If you think the Bible is dry, like read it out loud and like do a dramatic voice. Because it just, Paul's like, maybe, just maybe. But then he says this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, die, Christ died for us. At just the right time, when you were still powerless, you, you had nothing to bring to the table. There is no way you could save yourself. At just the right time in history, all laid out. I mean, you read the Bible and you read the genealogies and you're like, oh man, the Bible reading this morning is the begats. Oh, great. You know what the begats tell me? God cares about you. Because he put all of those people in line so that Jesus would be born. So that you could be reborn. Timing is important. Well, another place that timing is important is in the arena of farming. Farming. Now, I've talked about in the, the midst of the series about some of the things I felt like I was supposed to do with my life. 
Farming is one of those, and I'm like, that looks cool, but I've never felt called to be a farmer, primarily because I'm a night person, and I, I know farmers get up like 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning. I'm like, that's all good. I, you can keep that. I've tried to do a garden, a vegetable garden, and I've, you know, I've had this idea like, we're going to grow our own food, right? Yeah. I think we made a salad, and that's about it, but, but farming, timing Timing is important. See, the farmer has to watch the seasons. And the farmer has to be aware of what kind of crop he wants to grow. And he has to make sure that he doesn't miss the window for planting the crop. And he has to make sure that, that as the, the crop is growing, that he's fertilizing it at just the right time. And that he's watering it at just the right time. And he's watching the, the weather to make sure, listen, if there's no rain coming, that I get the sprinklers out there and make sure that the water is getting applied in the right amounts. And he's watching the condition of the, the crop and as the plants grow. And he's watching for just the right moment when, when they, the plant produces fruit. Whether it's corn or maize or soybeans or potatoes, whatever it is. Because he has to wait for just the right moment to harvest. And there's a window of opportunity that exists for the farmer. I was doing some research and reading about wheat. I figured we'll, we'll pick wheat. In fact, I have a picture of wheat. We can throw that up here. This is a wheat field that is ready for harvest. You've probably seen a picture like this before. That's a lot of wheat. I learned that one acre of wheat produces about 60 bushels of kernels, of wheat kernels. Uh, That translates to about 42 pounds of white flour, which in turn translates to about 42 loaves of bread. So the next time you're in Trader Joe's or Ralph's and you're in the bread aisle, stand back and like count 42, just be that weird person, right? Count 42 loaves of bread and go, this represents one acre of wheat. This is one acre of wheat that a farmer had to go out and and prepare the soil, plant the seed, make sure that it was nursed, make sure that it was watered, come out, harvest it, and make sure to to, to extract all of those kernels to send it out to the flour mill. It's pretty cool, huh? I think it's cool. So about about 60 bushels of wheat for one acre. I also learned this, that wheat has this very small window of opportunity to be harvested. See, because if you harvest it too early and it's green and it's not ripe, you can't do anything with it. It, It's essentially useless. But if you wait too long, the little seed pod bursts and the the kernel falls out into the ground and it's useless. And so the farmer is having to watch for the exact right time. And they learn, you'll see like farmers, you'll see in the movies or, or maybe on a documentary, they go out and they'll take, they'll walk through. Can you just imagine walking through that field, just kind of running your hands over Right? You can, do, can you do that? All right. Imagination. All right. And he'll pull off a stalk and he'll rub it in his hands. Right? And he'll, he'll be able to tell how, how close is this wheat to being ready. And I tell you, the day that he goes out and the, and the chaff just falls off that wheat and the kernel's ready, he's making the call. Guys, get the combines out. We're ready to go. And they start going out into the harvest and bringing it in, sending that flour into the flour mill. Timing is important. Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Let's set our focus this morning on, and, and, and kind of gets established in our anchor passage. 1 Corinthians 3, starting in verse, uh, verse 1. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly. Mere infants in Christ, I gave you milk, not solid food. For you were not ready for it. Indeed, you were still not ready. You were still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? What after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. Listen to this. As I planted the seed, and Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants, nor he who waters has anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor." 
For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I have laid a foundation as an expert builder. And someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is. Because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. What he has built survives, he will receive his reward, but is burned up, he will suffer loss, he himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Again, there's so much in this passage, and we spent a few weeks unpacking different aspects of this. The idea that we are not mere men, we are eternal beings, and we don't live for the moment, in the moment rather, we live for a moment, that moment being when we will stand before the the judgment seat of God, the Bema seat, that day, and he will test our lives. He will judge our lives. He will look at the work of our lives and our calling and say, what did you do with what I gave you? I made this statement. I want to say it again this morning. We will not be judged according to what we did. Right? We have this idea in the world today, in the church today, that I've just got to do lots of good things. If I accumulate enough good things in, my, in the good column and less things in the bad column, I'm good to go. And that God will not judge you according to the good things you did. He's going to judge you according to what you were called to do. That he has a plan, he has a race marked out for you, and that that he's made a way for us to find out what that plan is. And we have to engage with him in that. It's a sobering word, but it's, it's a true word. It's truth right out of the scripture, that we will be held accountable for the calling on our lives. We'll be held accountable for the calling on our lives. Well, this morning I want to focus on this passage, this, this portion where he says, you know, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. And then he jumps down and he says, we're God's fellow workers, God's field and God's building. We talked about the building last week. So the focus this morning is this. You are God's field and you are God's fellow workers in the field. You are God's field and you're God's fellow workers. We're going to get to the fellow workers part in a minute. When I say that statement, you are God's field, you might be just going, I don't even know what that means. It sounds good, but what does that even mean? That doesn't hold any meaning or any value. So we need to start there. We need to understand what that means. See, Paul was a master communicator. He's a master communicator. Every letter and every book that he wrote, he wrote... He picked the right words and he picked the right tone. He knew his audience and he knew his message and he knew how to connect the two. If you take any kind of communications class, they teach you that. There's a message, there's an audience, and your job as a communicator is to to bring those two together. And sometimes it's a connect and sometimes, right, you ever walk out of a conversation or a presentation or a class and you're like, I'm more confused now than I was when I came in. Anyone? Anyone else? Right? Okay, thank you. Paul is a master communicator, and so he wrote this letter to the Corinthians and used words and pictures and imagery he knew that they would understand. See, the city of Corinth was built up on a hill. And, and if you stood in Corinth at the outskirts of the city and looked down the hill, what you would see would be fields All kinds of fields with all kinds of crops. You see, we live in a day and age, you go to the grocery store and there's a loaf of bread wrapped in plastic. You're like, great. And there might be a bakery at your grocery store, and so they might be baking bread there. But for the most part, the bread you're buying is bread that's been packaged somewhere else and shipped in. And so we do this whole thing, it's called just in time. Food makes it to our shelves just in time. So the farmer farms the wheat, it goes to the mill, it becomes flour, it goes to the baker, the the bakers are making the the bread and they're shipping it and packaging it, so it will just get get to the store just in time for you to go, I need bread to make the kids sandwiches for school tomorrow, just in time. But we don't give a lot of thought to where that came from and the process that it's been through. And that's just the world that we live in. See, for the Corinthians though, they didn't have preservatives 
and transportation the way that we have it. And they didn't have a grocery store. See, there was a baker down the street, and you bought all your food from the baker or from the f- fishmonger or from the vegetable guy or whoever it was, and the, the, the food arrived at their little stall from down the hill. There was either the fisherman down at the, down at the wharf brought the, the fish up and sold it the next day or the day of the catch. So they could stand on the city and say, there's the wheat that's going to be my bread tomorrow. And so they had this picture. And it was important. It was valuable. They understood the value. We read about crops failing and droughts. And it's like this far off thing that we read about in the news. The reality for them was if the fields didn't produce, they went hungry. And so things were very intricately tied together. So when Paul says, you are God's field, it would start producing a picture, painting a picture in their minds. This is the picture that they would start seeing. See, in Scripture, the field is significant. And you can read about fields in the Old Testament and fields in the New Testament. The field was a place of fruitfulness and provision. The field was a place of fruitfulness and provision. If you didn't have the field, you didn't eat. And so you needed fields. And, and it was a good thing to see that wheat. Because you know, you're like, oh, it's a good harvest this year. We're going to have food for the winter or for whatever that season would be. Not only that, it produced jobs. The people got to work in the fields. So it wasn't just there was provision, but it actually there were people that needed to go out and work in the field. And it provided income for people. The fields were also a sign of wealth or investment for those people. See, you read about people in Scripture who said there was a man who had a field. What it's saying is he was a wealthy man because people didn't own property then like they do now. And so if you owned a field, it was a big deal. See, you might have a 401k or a mutual fund or you might invest in stocks. They didn't have that. What they did is they bought a field. See, because a field would keep producing, and every year you would get income from it. And so if I want to be set for my retirement, I would buy a few fields. And then I'd hire some people to come work it, right? Jesus talks about the hired hand, right? Come and work the field. And then when the harvest day, he says, hey, everyone come, and I'm going to pay you uh, for the day to come and harvest in my field. And remember, there's the, the parable about the guys who get hired later in the day. Why did he hire more people? Because the farmer realized, we're not going to get done. I need more help. And I need to get the harvest in. And then they start grumbling. They're like, well, those guys work two hours, and they got the same wages, and I work seven hours. And right, Jesus is like, hey, stop comparing. You, you agreed. Okay, different sermon. All right. It's so good. I just love, I just love how Scripture just is weaved together. So good. It was a sign of wealth and investment. So when someone, when the Bible says that someone went and sold their field, right in the book of Acts, they sold a field and they brought the money. They were all in. They sold their future investment. They sold their, their safety net, as it were, and said, here, this is for the work of the kingdom. And so the field was a big, big deal. The field was also a place that required a lot of hard work, right? Because you couldn't just go sow in a field. You had to go first and prepare the field and pull out the rocks and get rid of the weeds and prepare the soil, just like a farmer today does, except he's sitting on a John Deere, right? And he's just cruising along in his tractor, and the machine is doing the work. Still hard work, but for them, it was manual labor. You had to go prepare the fields and get the fields ready. And when harvest was done, then you... Man, you're back at it the next day, tilling the fields. And so they understood that the field was a place of incredibly hard work. So with that in mind, you are God's field. So verse 9 says that. You are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. When God says you're his field, here's what what he's saying. He's saying that you you are of immense value to him. You are of immense value to him. What he's saying is he's made deposits in the field of your life that are supposed to produce fruit. And it's not just an apple, but it's a harvest. It's a crop that's brought in that will both nourish you and be a blessing to others. 
His desire is that your life would be a place of fruitfulness. You see, the farmer gets to eat some of what he brings in. Part of farming. You get to eat from your own labor. But then he takes some of that and he sells it. The wheat farmer takes the wheat and he sells it to the co-op or whatever the case would be to go and to make money. And then they take it and he doesn't deal with the wheat. When, once he sells it, it's done. And he goes back to the field and he starts working in the field again. And he sells that, but he'll keep some for himself. And then what's critically important is this, that he keeps some of the seed to be able to plant for the next season. He doesn't sell all the seed. And, and the analogy rings true then. Now we've got corporations who sell seed, and it's, you can watch all the documentaries on Netflix. But, um, but there's a process that goes on here, that God says that you are his field, and he wants to produce something in you, and it's something valuable and something important. And he wants to produce a harvest in your life that's not just a blessing to you, but it's a blessing to other people. And he sees you as an eternal investment. God sees you as an eternal investment. That the value of your life is not just limited by your time on this earth, but he sees your part in heaven as important. And so he's investing in you now for eternity. You track? Does that make sense? And so when we look at our own lives, we have to see ourselves through that light, that I am valuable to the Lord, that he cares about me. So we are his field, but we're also his fellow workers in the field, in the field. John chapter 4 verse 35 says this, Jesus says this, do not, do you not say four months, uh, four, four months more and then the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe. For the harvest. Have we heard that passage before? If you've been in church for any amount of time, you've probably heard John chapter 4, verse 35. Four more months and then the harvest. The, the farmer is looking ahead going, I'm timing. Timing is important. But I want to read starting in verse 1 all the way through 35. Because there's something that happens before Jesus says this sentence. And um, everyone say this word with me. On the count of three, say context. One, two, three. Context, all right. Context is this. Jesus made this statement, but there was something that happened before it in Scripture that we need to understand. We have to read it in context. All Scripture needs to be read in context. We can't just pull one out and go, I'm going to make this mean what I want it to mean. Not a good idea. Context. So we're going to read the context. Like I said, it's a long passage, and I want to make sure that we we get through this. So starting in verse 1, Of chapter 4. You can follow along on the screen or in your own Bible. I'm reading out of the NIV today. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. And and although, in fact, it was not Jesus who was baptized, but his disciples, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back, uh, back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. He came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, Go back, go, call your husband and come back. 
I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man uh, you now have is not your husband. What you have just, uh, just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you were a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. But you Jews claim this is the place where you must worship. Uh, you claim the place where you must worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they, see, for they are the kind of worshipers God seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know, that the, uh, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, Come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. And meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say four months and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for the harvest. They are ripe for the harvest. We're going to stop there. Context. This encounter with the Samaritan woman teaches us so much about what it means to go. When Jesus go, says go, that in fact, Matthew 28, right, his instruction, the great commission to us is, go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to obey, right? And, and truly I'm with you till the end of the age. To go into the world, and we talk about this as a church, we quote the scripture, lift your eyes, look, pray that the Lord would bring more workers for the harvest. But Jesus gives us here some very practical ways of engaging with the harvest. With engaging with those that God says, I care about those people and I want to bring them into my storehouse. I want to make them a part of eternity with me because I have a plan for his life. And and her life for their lives. We're going to take some chunks of this passage, and I just want to insert some key points. My, my prayer is this, that you hear and that you see the, the way that Jesus modeled for us. See, when I say that there's a world to reach, I'm not talking about someone else. I'm not saying, hey, there's missionaries who have a world to reach, and you should really pray for them, though you really should. But you are a missionary, that you are a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that God has called you To go into the field. You are his workers. His fellow workers in the field. Is it cold in here? Okay. Let me turn the air off. I can see this happening. (laughs) I'm pretty soon people are going to be stealing blankets from each other. All right. It feels, I like it. It feels good to me, but I can, I want to make sure that you're, you're comfortable. So starting in verse 1, and we're going we're gonna to move through this pretty quickly. I don't want get, to get stopped up on this. But notice right away that the disciples did the baptizing. That the reputation was more and more people are following Jesus and he's baptizing them. And, and, and here John takes a moment to pause and say, but it wasn't Jesus. It was the disciples. Why? Because we're his fellow workers. That Jesus said, hey, you guys can baptize. It doesn't have to be me doesn't have to be the pastor. Can I lead someone to Jesus? Absolutely. Could I baptize someone? Oh, and there are people that their theology gets, oh no, it has to be the pastor. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. 
the disciples did the baptizing. He goes into this place, Samaria, and he has this encounter with a woman. Um, and, and she says, we don't associate with each other. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. Why are you even talking to me? <laughs> those people. We don't associate with those people. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, I'm a Christian. I don't talk to those people. I don't hang around with those people. Jesus did. Jesus did. He broke custom. He broke tradition. He, he broke the norms to reach the lost. Can I just tell you, it's not enough to go to a prayer meeting and pray that people come to know Jesus. Lord, reach those people and bring them into our, no, stop. He's sending you into the harvest. That means you actually have to encounter those people. That there are Samaritans in our, in our lives. There are people who know. Listen, Jesus didn't say it. She said it. Wait, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. You're not supposed to talk to me. How many people are in your life are going, wait, you're a Christian. I know you're a Christian. And you're talking to me? That's powerful. It tears down walls. Can I just say the church has to stop building walls and start tearing down walls? If we're going to reach the lost, people need to know that we're for them, not against them. She says, and he says, you know, if you knew the gift, if you knew who it was that was talking to you, you'd ask for this living water. And she goes, well, I haven't, you don't have anything to draw water with. And at this point, he kind of loses her. Because he's like, hey, I've got living water to give. And she's like, um, but you don't have a bucket or a rope. I think sometimes that as believers, we go out into the world and we start talking Christianese. And then we're confused why people don't understand. They don't understand because they don't understand. <laughs> because their eyes aren't open. I had a, I had a pastor friend once tell me... I, I, I had a business dealing with someone who wasn't a believer, and they did something that I thought was unethical. It, was, it could have been gone either way, but it's like, oh, I don't want anything to do with them, oh, those people. And he's like, hey, just, just remember. He's like, that's fine. But he's like, don't expect redeemed behavior from unredeemed people. And sometimes we expect people who've not yet met Jesus to act like us. And quite frankly, sometimes I, I hope they don't. All right, we'll let that one lie. <laughs> she didn't understand his spiritual religious language. Now, he didn't shy away from it. He took the time later to explain it. He, took, he didn't just like throw it out there. It's like, hey, you need to be redeemed out the door. Like, what is it? Like a Coke bottle? No, he took time to explain. Some of you don't get the idea of redeeming a Coke bottle. All right. He addressed the eternal need, and she was only seeing the temporal need. I've got spiritual water, and she's like, well, you don't have a bucket. And he's like, no, not that kind of water. And that's okay. It's okay that sometimes people are like, I'm not there with you yet. I see there's something about your life, but I'm not there yet. People are in process, and people are coming to Jesus. Some people are like the stalk with the green wheat, and we want to take him and just go, ah, and God's like, no, 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 not yet, not yet. There's going to be a moment, man, when that kernel is just perfectly ready, when the field is white, when it's ripe, and then you go. She also found a point of commonality. She says, our father Jacob, and she goes all the way back, tracks their ancestry, because the Jews and the Samaritans had a similar ancestry. So Jacob... And Abraham, and that lineage, right? And at a certain point, it breaks off and the Jews become their own line. And that's, a, again, another whole story. But she goes all the way back, generations, to find a point of commonality. Jesus is incredible. Can I just tell you? Can I tell you that one of the keys to reaching people in your life, in your sphere of influence, is find a point of commonality. Find a point of commonality. Find something that you can talk about. For Megan and I right now, it's football. It's just football. 
And that's where we get to connect with people. But if you find one point of commonality, there'll be another and then another and another. And the Lord will open the doors. Jesus then unpacks. He says, everyone who drinks this water will thirst again. But then he starts talking about eternal springs that well up and sustain you for eternity. And he starts unpacking the spiritual language. And, And check it out. He makes it sound inviting. He's like, this well, and it's going to refresh you, and it's going to be amazing. You know, the people's impression of what church is and what being a Christian is is really skewed. It's a bunch of rules, and you have to go to this place, and it's really dry and boring, and you have to dress a certain way. And a lot of that perception is based in reality because that's what the church has been in a lot of instances Can I tell you, we're supposed to make the gospel sound inviting because it is inviting. Pastor Wayne Cadero says, people aren't tired of the gospel. They're tired of tired presentations of the gospel. Make the gospel inviting because it is life. But she still doesn't get it. And so he doesn't stop there. He confronts her lostness in a very loving way. Direct but gentle. See, people who don't know Jesus don't need you to, don't want you to, they don't need you to tell them that they're okay. Oh, you're, you're good. <laughs> because they know they're not. And when you tell them they're okay, you're lying to them and they know it. So some, some of you need to have some hard conversations in a loving way so that you can move to the next level of leading someone to Jesus. Listen, if I find the cure to cancer, what do you think I'm going to do with it? I'm going to tell people, and you've heard that analogy, right? I've heard that analogy, find the cure, you're going to take it. But it's true. I want to share this. And if I have cancer and I know you have the cure and you're holding out on me, it's not good, If I know you have hope and you have salvation and there's joy in your life and I'm dying for those things and you keep beating around the bush and you won't just tell me, church, we have it to give direct and gentle. He talks about her husband. Go get your husband. (laughs) Well, I'm not married. And he goes, you're right. And then prophecy comes. I perceive that you're a prophet. Yes, you're perceiving well. You've been married five times, and the man you're with right now isn't your husband. Can I just tell you, this woman had a reputation in town. Everyone knew her. Everyone knew the woman who'd been married five times, and now the guy she's with, right? She was all the talk down at the bazaar. Have you seen who she's with now? That woman. Oh, And here's Jesus having a conversation with her. And he confronts her. And you know what? She doesn't go, how dare you talk to me about my husband? Because he's already talked about living water. Can I tell you, Jesus does in a few minutes what takes some people years to do, or some people never, (laughs) is to actually build a relationship with a person that would open a door for you to share truth with them. People don't care what you know until they know that you care. And you have to build relationship to be able to address the things in someone's life. And sometimes, remember, it's the hammer, the the hammer analogy. And some believers go around like a big old sledgehammer going, sin in your life, sin in your life, sin in your life. Hammer on my shoulder. I'm proud. And there's just shattered lives. And God's like, put away the hammer. And start dealing gently with people. And then there will be a point where you can take out like that little tinkering hand. The one like you get in like from Ikea. Right? That any tool guy is like, (laughs) that's funny. Um, That little hammer. And then you can start just ding, ding, ding. Just small. And the door will open. And you can start addressing things in in a larger way. In a gentle way. But it has to flow through relationship. Jesus does this in a matter of minutes. In a matter of minutes, confronts her. She says, I can see you're a prophet. And then she gets religious. I love this. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that this place, that the place is there. 
I guarantee you when you're sharing the gospel with someone, at some point they're going to get religious. Or they'll say this, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. And they'll turn the conversation because they don't know where to go next. She gets religious and it doesn't phase Jesus. So good. Doesn't phase Jesus. And he brings her back to the big picture. And he says, listen, there's a day coming. You say you worship here. We worship there. You don't know what you worship. We know what we worship. But there's a day coming and God's looking for people who will just worship him in spirit and in truth. And gently again, he says, no, let me correct your thinking. And let me just work around the religi- religiosity and let's just speak to the heart. And she receives it. Pointing to God. There's a day coming. There's revelation that takes place and her eyes start being open. All the while she starts sowing, you know, she even identifies that there's the Messiah. And he says, the one that you're talking to, yeah, I'm him. And at this point, she's ready to receive him because he's been so gentle and kind with her, calling stuff out. But through this process, they get to this point, I am with her. Well, she heads back into town. She goes back into town, that woman with that reputation, screaming at the top of her lungs, hey, everybody, come, come meet this guy who just called me on my stuff. Can you imagine that what she received was bigger than her shame? It was bigger than, uh, than her guilt. It was bigger than her reputation. So much so that she found instant freedom in Jesus Christ to be able to go, Hey, you need what I just got. So often people who just found Jesus are the best evangelists. Right? He's being forgiven much. Right? It's a big deal. That seed multiplies. And so we bring in the harvest, not just because we need that kernel, but because there's more seed there. She runs into town, come see this guy who told me everything that I am. Called me on my stuff. But then the disciples show up. (laughs) She's talking to that woman. And they're talking to each other. Sounds like the church a little bit, actually. All right? The disciples return and they were surprised to find him with talking with a woman and a Samaritan woman at that. And they asked, but no one asked, what do you want? Or why were you talking with her? They're all thinking it. How many times in the church do we see a friend who's actually engaging with reaching the lost? And we're going, I wonder if they've gone astray. Why are they talking? Why are they hanging out with those people? Right? And it's this... And God's like, no, actually, you were supposed to be there as well. But if you would just stop being so self-righteous. Listen, church, I'm not saying that we compromise. We don't compromise because when we compromise, we compromise the message. But you can't deliver a message to people you don't know. Romans talks about this. Paul says, listen, how are they going to know if they don't hear? And how are they going to hear if someone doesn't preach? And how it's, right? You got to be sent. God's sending us to be able to receive what he has. They had a problem with Jesus talking to her. Are you willing to risk being associated with the people that Jesus wants to reach? Are you willing to risk being associated with the people that God is trying to reach? No more holy huddle. Us four, no more, whatever. Right? It's, we need to be in the field. The farmer goes into the field. The gospel impacted this woman, this woman in such a powerful way. She goes into town. She tells people while the disciples are going, whoa, 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 what is it that, She's coming back with a crowd. Can I just tell you, contrast the picture. The disciples were just in the same town, and what did they come back with? Grocery bags. The sinner who just got saved or just saw Jesus, what does she come back with? With people. And sometimes we're satisfied with the grocery bags, the things that we carry around and go, hey, look at us, we're the church. And we got this, and we got this, and we're going to have a good feast. And God's like, we're the people. We're 
are the people. And it's in context of all of this happening that Jesus then says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. It satisfied Jesus way more to see one person saved than to eat a piece of bread. Because it satisfied him for eternity where a piece of bread, temporal, just in the moment. And then he says, open your eyes, look to the fields, they're ripe. The disciples missed what was right in front of them. Jesus is saying to us today, to his church, open your eyes. Where is the field in front of you that he has called you to? The field that he's called you to go out into. The field that he's asking you to work and and, and cultivate. To reap that wheat and bring it into the storehouse. To introduce people to the Lord. Where is it that he's calling you to step it up? To lift your eyes, to open your eyes. There are 50 50 thousand plus people, 55,000 people in Glendora. I know this is that everyone, if everyone on a Sunday morning woke up in Glendora and said, I'm going to church, there's not enough churches in our city to contain them. But people are hungry and we need to go out into the field. Let's stand together. You are God's field. You have to understand first and foremost that you are precious to God You are valuable to God. But then you have to understand that you are his workers in the field. You are his workers in the field. And that he is wanting to bring other precious lives. He's wanting to bring other precious lives into the kingdom through you. You need to know God so you can know your calling. You need to grow so that you've got something to give. You need to serve like Jesus because Jesus served with all humility. And then we need to go. At the end of the day, we have to take everything that he's been doing in our lives in this place, good things, and we need to take it to our neighbors and to the nations. The whole gospel to the whole world until all have heard. That's what we're about. You are his worker. You are his workers. Father, this morning, we want to partner with you. We want to partner with the work that you're doing around the world. We want to partner with the the message that you want to bring. And Lord, we want to learn from you. Jesus, we want to learn from you. The way that you approached this woman, the way that you engaged with, with her that you built rapport, that you built a relationship, the way that you were gentle but direct. We want to learn from you. Teach us, God. I pray that we would overcome fear and timidity. Lord, that you would give us a boldness to speak the word that is in our mouth to speak so that people would come to know you, that the lost would be found, that they would be saved, And Lord, that you would get all the glory.